It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Podcast presents Brett Baer's All-Star Panel. America's got to be in the lead if you want to deal with these threats. We're going to lead. The morning is over. The shiva is done. And if you're a conservative, you should be optimistic. You know, my main priority right now is making sure that it delivers for the American people. We have to make our country great again, and I will do that. I think the president gets criticized by people all the time for the stuff he says, by people who ignore what he does. Now, Fox's chief political anchor, Brett Baer. President Biden celebrated his 81st birthday this week as concerns over his age and his leadership have been brought back to the forefront of voters' minds with a new NBC poll showing his approval rating at an all-time low in that poll at 40 percent. I just want you to know it's difficult turning 60. Difficult. (laughs) And with less than two months to go before the Iowa caucuses, Republican candidates continue their push on the campaign trail. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley launching a $10 million ad campaign in Iowa. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis teaming up with Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds using her political machine and her endorsement to try to win over voters instead of former President Donald Trump. For a conversation on this and more, we bring in our panel, Democratic strategist, co-host of The Five, Jessica Tarloff. Fox News contributor and chief political correspondent for the Washington Examiner, Byron York, and Fox News audio political anchor and Washington correspondent, Jared Halpern. Jared, first to the president's uh, troubles in polls and uh, concern about his age. We've been hearing it for months. Uh, It seems like it's not going away and that the poll numbers, despite all of the good things the administration talks about happening, really have not budged. They haven't. And that's something that the White House um, acknowledged. Corinne Jean-Pierre acknowledged this week again, saying that um, all they can do is try and uh, explain their views on on the economy, on on the progress that they're seeing. Uh, They argue that they don't view the president's age as a liability, that it shows his experience and that they point to his ability to handle uh, these crises abroad and and his uh, domestic agenda as evidence that he has the right uh, experience to lead. But clearly it is something that voters are concerned about, Brad. It is an issue that is not going to go away. Um, the president in the last few days, especially on his birthday, tried to make light of it. He had a couple of jokes about it, said that it feels great to turn 60, joked that at the, uh, I think, 76th uh, turkey pardoning, he wasn't at the first one. They put that birthday cake that looked like the table was on fire on social media. Um, and so I do think that you see a, a sense of acknowledgement. But I think the question is going to be over the next uh you know, year or so, what is it that the president can do to calm some of those fears from voters about his age and how his age impacts his ability to do the job? Jessica, do the jokes work? Uh, Do they work? I mean, when he comes to the end of the speech and he doesn't know which way to get off the stage, does this kind of work for him? Well, I think the jokes and the misdirection are a little bit different. I do happen to think that the jokes work. I mean, what the White House team was able to do 
by transforming Let's Go Brandon into the dark Brandon meme, which has ended up selling millions of dollars worth of merchandise, something that actually a lot of Gen Z voters absolutely adore about President Biden, shows that he can make it work for him. And the Post, and I understand it was not the picture I would have chosen to commemorate my birthday, but it ended up getting over a million likes on Instagram and all these adoring little comments, right, about how funny it is that he said that you couldn't fit all 146 candles on it. Um, So I think the jokes are fine. I think that the stuff that happens on stage is what gives people pause or at least makes them think about it more than they would if they were just reading off his accomplishments, for instance, or just hearing about his big wins. And one thing that I understand why the administration can't delve into but is really crucial to this is part of the central issue with Biden's age is Kamala Harris. It's not. 81 is old, and I, I completely understand that. But if Biden had a vice president that elicited more faith, right, or more positive feelings in the Democratic base, I think it would be less of an issue for him. And I do find it curious that we don't see that polled as a connective issue, right? You have Kamala Harris's approval and Joe Biden's Mm -hmm. approval and all these questions about them as individuals, but they are a package deal. And when you're electing someone at 82, you're obviously going to be looking at who's coming next. Now, I'm not arguing for pushing her off the ticket. Um, I don't think that she is. Could you? I I mean, it's legal. Yeah, I mean, it it feasibly could happen. Politically. No, I don't think so. I think that it would honestly feed the narrative that it was all about identity politics, because what are you going to say then? Oh, we'll slot in Val Demings, this other really great black woman, right, to make sure that the black female base of the Democratic Party, which is the backbone of the party, doesn't get mad about it, right? It, It really invalidates the case that they've made for the Kamala Harris vice presidency. And one, frankly, I think that she's qualified to have. She just hasn't resonated with people over the course of the last three years. And I think that that is one of the major factors in the polling problems that Joe Biden is facing. Byron, we've talked about this probably in six podcasts. You know, the the thought about how is it possible that it's going to be President Biden and Kamala Harris versus <laughs> Donald Trump and whomever else? How is that possible? And then what's the other shoe that drops that makes that not possible, that, that changes the dynamic? I just can't think of the shoe. <laughs> that That's a good way. To put it, you know, first on the birthday cake, I joined millions of Americans who didn't get the joke. I mean, this conflagration in front of Biden uh, where, where he should have had just one uh, candle on his birthday cake seemed to be a, a bad idea to me. Uh, you know, on the on the on the Biden versus Trump thing, there is this natural human desire uh, for uh, a white knight for some sort of deus ex machina just to come down and save us from this problem. And we have seen polls uh, con- uh, consistently say that a lot of Americans say they dread a Trump versus Biden rematch. They don't want to see it. Now, this is not the first time ever that voters uh, have disliked their choice for president. It's actually pretty common, but it's really intense right now. Um, but the the two problems are uh, Trump seems actually absolutely locked in to his race, and he has actually profited politically so far from being being indicted all these times. <laughs> and, and the other thing is, it's incredibly difficult 
for a political party to dislodge a sitting president of its own party if he wants to run. I mean, uh, I understand what uh, Jessica is saying about um, Kamala Harris, but but regardless of that, it's just really hard to go into a president of the United States and say, you can't run. And one last thing about the age. I think his age issue is completely tied up with all the other substantive issues of the campaign. I think if the economy were going well, if the border was not a disaster, if uh, there was peace in the world, I think a lot of people would say, you know, he's really old and he does kind of lose his way sometimes, but things are going well. And I, I, I'm, I don't want to change. But since things are going so badly and the president doesn't seem up to the job, that's a really bad combination. Panel, we'll hold it right there. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Jared, uh, as far as the other side of the coin and the other shoe to drop, it does not seem like these contenders on the Republican primary are breaking through or changing the dynamic. Now, we know that voting starts at the Iowa caucuses, January 15th. Could something change as far as a winner there, a winner in New Hampshire? Could it shuffle the deck as the former president is sitting in courtrooms all over the country? Maybe, but you just can't see it yet. You know, I've got Bob Vanderplatz uh, from uh, Iowa on the show, and he'll make his formal endorsement from his organization, which usually carries a lot of weight, uh, especially with evangelicals in Iowa, who usually carry a lot of weight in Iowa at the caucuses. But President Mike Huckabee, President Rick Santorum, and President Ted Cruz uh, (laughs) all never happened. And uh, the question is whether Iowa, a win there, or a win in New Hampshire, or both, can even change the deck to that point. Well, I think it's a good point about, you know, how much stock is being put into Iowa, because to your point, especially on the Republican side, um, the winner of the Iowa caucuses has not gone on to not not just to be president, Brett. They haven't won the party's nomination, right? And so that's something that to consider. I also think that you you look at the idea that uh, on the Democratic side, what the President Biden finished fourth or fifth there, fourth or fifth in New Hampshire, and yeah. you know was able to to kind of put together a coalition. That being said, I am interested to see what Bob Vanderplatt's uh, endorsement looks like. He, to your point, has a uh, very high uh, win rate there for his preferred candidates. Um, but other big kind of endorsements so far haven't moved the needle a whole lot. Um, I've not seen an awful lot of polling out of Iowa since uh, Governor Reynolds endorsed uh, Governor DeSantis, but it doesn't seem like the dynamic has shifted there a whole lot. Um, that being said, I mean, Iowa has always given us a lot of surprises, hasn't it, Brett? I mean, Barack Obama was uh, a surprise there. We have seen other surprises. Pete Buttigieg was a surprise there uh, not long ago. So Iowa has, has surprised us before. Maybe it will do so again. I think the bigger question is how many tickets are there out of Iowa, right? If this is a race that still has five, six Republicans in it, um, at what point does that field start to winnow? And is that the purpose now that we're looking at Iowa and New Hampshire to serve? Yeah. Just what I think. I, I agree with Jared's analysis. I think it's going to take getting through New Hampshire to see anyone drop out. Chris Christie has said that, you know, he's not going to kind of blow hard his way through the entirety of the primary season and that the Granite State is really uh 
where he's put most of his energy. And there was a moment where he looked like he was having a bit of a surge there that has since come down. So my expectation is that he'll drop out after that. And he had some pretty uh, intense words, I would say, for Nikki Haley about what South Carolina means for her. And if she doesn't win that, then what is the argument for your candidacy, right? If you were a hugely popular governor there, um, you know, and you can't win your home state, what's the expectation that you can actually win the presidency? Because right now she's running on this, I'm the electable one um, notion, which frankly, Democrats are picking up on. If you see that President Biden has been targeting Nikki Haley more than Donald Trump as of late, talking about how extreme she is and that she's not all that different from your typical MAGA Republican, et cetera. Um, but I just don't see, looking at the numbers, how anyone gets this because, beyond Donald Trump because his base has been immovable since he won in 2016. He has a ceiling. We all know what it is. And I don't think it's enough to win the presidency again. But he gets, you know, to 45 percent and then that's the end of it. And that's what Joe Biden has to clear and why his team feels confident that he should be able to do that again. Yeah. How much do you think endorsements matter? You know, uh, Governor Reynolds in Iowa endorsing Governor DeSantis, potentially Governor Sununu in New Hampshire, if he endorses Nikki Haley. How much does that mean, do you think, Jessica? Well, it seems to mean a lot less against Donald Trump than it would in normal times. But that's been the story for years now, right? These are the rules in politics, except Donald Trump. Um, so we'll have to see. But as Jared laid out, you know, the way that it looked on the Democratic side, and I remember sitting on air waiting for the Democratic Party to figure out how to caucus properly, you know, when they declared Pete Buttigieg the winner by, you know, three votes or whatever it was <laughs> over Bernie Sanders. And everyone, you know, saying Joe Biden's never going to make it. New Hampshire never going to make it. And well, let's talk Nevada. And then we get to South Carolina and Jim Clyburn, you know, put that crown on his head. And it was onwards uh, to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. So the endorsements, I think, obviously, they're valuable. You should get a little jump um, in the state that they come from. But against the Donald Trump charisma and just the MAGA movement, I, I don't think it's that meaningful. But, you know, Jessica, the interesting thing about that Biden race is that at South Carolina, remember, he finished fifth in New Hampshire. I yeah. was in a church in a basement where the reporters outnumbered people <laughs> yeah. with Vice President Biden. And he had a teleprompter in the bottom of a church. And that it was just a surreal experience. He came in fifth and then went to South Carolina and won. Right. But then but then all the other candidates threw in the town. Yeah. They made a deal. They all rallied around Biden immediately, like quickly. Yeah. I and just don't know if Republicans are wired the same way. Well, that's the, I mean, it's honestly a highlight when uh, on the five, my co-hosts are reflective of things that Republicans do <laughs> versus Democrats, but Democrats will get in line. And they will especially get in line when there are big issues on the ballot, which we know that the Dobbs decision is going to be, and it has been every single time that it has appeared since then. And I should um, note that earlier today in a speech, Donald Trump endorsed a national abortion ban. It's already obviously already been cut, put into Democratic ads. I think that that will substantially harm him. Um, Republicans fall in love. We fall in line. And uh, that's what you saw in 2020. And it has really worked out for us. Yeah. Byron, you know, I, this abortion thing is really interesting how Republicans talk about it. You know, you're talking about a national abortion ban, but if it's at 15 weeks 
That is where the rest of the world is. European countries on average are at 15 weeks. The If you flip it on its head and say beyond 15 weeks or all the way to giving birth, uh, it becomes a much more radical thought process about that. And, you know, it, it's just amazing how Republicans have lost the rhetoric game on this issue. I'm not sure it's the policy game. They lost the rhetoric. Well, I think they've actually lost both games here. First, you're, you know, you're totally right on the 15 week thing. 15 weeks is what uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts wanted to enact in the Dobbs decision, <clears throat> rather than just killing Roe altogether. And that would have been the law of the land. And I, I think that would have been widely uh, accepted. But no, uh, the Biden administration did not want that. And uh, Republicans, conservatives wanted to do away with Roe. And, you know, in the Republican race, it has seemed so far that the one candidate who has kind of found the tone, find the right way to talk about abortion, is Nikki Haley, uh, the only woman in the Republican race. And she really seems to have found that tone. Now, as we've all been saying, there, she's she's part of the fight for second place at the moment, so it may not really matter. But uh, you're absolutely right that Republicans have just you know, just fallen all over themselves uh, and shot themselves in both feet and then done it again uh, on the abortion issue. They they don't know how to talk about it and they don't really know what they want for it. Yeah, it's a different time, Jerry. But when Bob McDonald in Virginia ran, he was a super social conservative and he was pro-life all the way. But he ran on the economy. He ran strictly on economic issues. Now, he didn't have the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. And he didn't have Democrats jumping on it as much as they are now as an issue. But it is amazing to see some campaigns that Governor Yunkin in that Senate, state Senate and state House contest to focus on the abortion thing just seems so backwards. Well, and, you know, I think state races are a little bit different sometimes than, than national races. I was struck by um, the, the Virginia races and, and you know, we all live in the D.C. area, Brett, and so we have the, the luxury of seeing all of these ads. The ads it, it was striking. Yeah. It was striking to me uh, to see how little of the ads, both from Republicans and Democrats, talked about the economy. Right. Which poll after poll after poll after poll shows is the number one issue. Democrats talked an awful lot about abortion in their ads against Republicans. Republicans talked a lot about crime in their ads against Democrats. Now, maybe those are, are more localized issues than uh, the, the economy is, but it was striking to me that both, I think, parties were maybe trying out some of that messaging that, that may be resonating with voters, especially suburban voters that have been so critical uh, in, in these swing states over the last couple of cycles uh, to see what message breaks through uh, the loudest. Meantime, uh, one last thing about uh, Congress. Uh, we're still in this kind of battle uh, over what it's going to look like going forward. This continuing resolution has passed. Speaker Johnson with almost exactly the same vote, Jessica, as former Speaker McCarthy yep. on a continuing resolution, which cost the former Speaker his job. Um, there's a real you know, question about how you're going to get herd the cats again, falling in line uh, for the Republicans going forward. Yeah. Well, when you have a slim majority and, you know, and you're not Nancy Pelosi 
it's uh, difficult to do that. I'm glad that Democrats came over to help out with this. Um, I think that Mike Johnson needs to be aware of what actually did Speaker McCarthy in with Democrats. And it wasn't a policy issue. It was the fact that he went on uh, on Face the Nation and trashed Democrats the day after they had bailed him out. And we want to keep the government open, right? That's what Democrats want. And obviously, we want our policy preferences. Um, but I think that we understand that the chaos that will ensue by not having a speaker again um, is not something that is worthwhile for us and that we can head into 2024 being the party that isn't the chaos party. I will also add that Mike Johnson seemingly at this moment does not have a Matt Gates problem and that you can probably survive if you don't have a Matt Gates problem. So he should hold on to that for as long as possible. Yeah, but they definitely could use a few more seats to for well, breathing. Not George Santos's, I can tell you that. That's true. Byron, last word. Um, well, I think the, the message that Mike Johnson has gotten from some of the most conservative members is, OK, we're going to let you go on this one. Given the circumstances, we'll, we'll give you a pass on this continuing resolution, but we do not want to see uh, a bunch of them. So it's good the government's gonna, not going to shut down. But, you know, on these two urgent issues that people talk about, the House passed uh, an Israel uh, aid bill, which Democrats and the president have rejected. Nobody's passed a Ukraine bill, these these two world emergencies that uh, Congress said they needed to to be there to work on. Um, uh, you know, we're pushing December and nobody's done anything about them. And we will follow all of that. Uh, thank you very much, guys. Yeah, and happy Thanksgiving. For, happy Thanksgiving. Now for a little bit of history. On November 21st, 1620, 41 male passengers on the Mayflower signed the Mayflower Compact. Compact was an agreement that the settlers would abide by the laws of the new government that they would form once they disembarked on what is now known as Plymouth Rock. The Mayflower Pact was the first written framework of government put in place in what would become the United States. Today, there are an estimated 35 million descendants of passengers of the Mayflower. That'll do it for this week. You can hear more of the series at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Make sure to leave a rating and a review. We want to hear from you. For Jessica, Byron, and Jared, I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.